No matter what you do, you can't change the fact that I believe in the life eternal as promised to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in the life eternal as promised to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. That is good. For believing what you do, we confer upon you a rare gift these days. A martyr's death. You will not only have life eternal, but you will sit with the saints among the elect. Come. It is time to keep your appointment with the Wicker Man. That was a clip from 1973's The Wicker Man, where Sergeant Howie, played by Edward Woodward, is about to have the worst cultural exchange ever, thanks to the inhabitants of Summer Isle and its pagan high priest, Lord Summer Isle, played by Christopher Lee. This week, we watch another folk horror and take a weird trip through reality and nature with a new Ben Wheatley film, Into the Earth. Plus, mythical beasts and a mythically beastly duo of blockbusters, we release the Kraken! In this week's What Have You Been Watching? We don't know what we're doing, we're just talking about films. And films are better than people. I'm Sam. And I'm Lawrence. Oh God! Oh Jesus Christ! Oh my God! Christ! Cool, so this week, what have you been watching? I have been watching Clash of the Titans from 2010 and Wrath of the Titans from 2012 as well. I joined you in watching Clash of the Titans, but not Wrath of the Titans. Did I miss out? Watched Clash, did not watch Wrath. You 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 didn't you didn't miss out. No, no, you didn't. You didn't miss out. Did um, it make you wrathful? Um <laughs> it made me it made me feel s- sad and sorry for everyone involved in making and producing both these films the truth- let's let's set it up a bit let's set it up. Let's, let's take let's, let's take it back to 2010 well what the reason i watched these was it was i had a night where i wasn't doing anything i really wanted to watch a, a different movie yep. this week i felt like something a little bit different i very vividly remember these films being at the cinema but never actually going to the cinema to watching them. So there was just something about them that was kind of calling to me. Which is an action-adventure fantasy, isn't yes, it? Yes, So, exactly. like, Clash of the Titans is about... What are they, like... What, what's ancient called? Greek gods. Yeah. So, yeah, yes. Ancient, so, Greek gods. So, so, Greek, so, Greek gods. So, like, the ancient Greek gods of, of Zeus and Poseidon... Uh, and Hades, and sort of all sort of battling each other. You don't need to sort of worry too much about the story. Well, it's like basically Perseus is abandoned as a child, and then he grows up to be Sam Worthington, uh, who most people probably will remember from Avatar, yeah. or perhaps some of the Call of Duty games. Mm. Uh, but the uh, he's raised but not by... of anything of note recently. No, we have not, to say, not really. Yeah. No, he's raised by uh, a fisherman and his wife. Played by Pete Postlethwaite. Great to see him. Amazing yeah. actor. He wasn't sorry. He he was just playing the fisherman. He wasn't playing the fisherman and the wife. Yeah, but yeah, he probably could have done. But yeah, really sadly, no longer with us. But an amazing actor. He was an amazing actor. But then uh, the local king in ancient Greece from uh, Argos. From Argos. Yeah, he wages a war on, on the gods yeah. using those tiny little pens. 
and firing <laughs> at them, and then also chucking a bunch of magazines at them. They're really thick. Yeah. Uh, they can deflect one of Zeus's thunderbolts. Pretty good weapons. Really Pretty good great, weapons. Yeah. Really surprisingly good weapons. So the King of Argos, <laughs> I couldn't, oh, could not make it through this movie without constantly thinking about uh, Argos the shop. So the, the, the King of Argos wages war on the gods by destroying their statues and stuff. And oh, that showed them. <laughs> that'll learn them. The gods are really oh. unhappy about this. Uh, you H- slam them. You slam those ancient <laughs> gods by destroying their statues. So H- Hades comes down, but they, but they do actually get quite pissed off. They do get so quite yeah, pissed yeah. off. Yeah, and and so pissed off that Hades comes down or kills. comes up. Hades, I guess, from the underworld. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. He, he sometimes he's an, he, no. He is. You're right. He is coming up, and he comes up from the underworld, smashes some soldiers, but in doing so. Accidentally kills Pete Postlethwaite, which upsets Perseus. Then Hades also turns up at Argos, uh, and he says, uh, "Where Percy is now? Where, where Perseus, Perseus is now? Per- Percy? Where Percy is per- now? So, but Percy is now. He's really un. He's really miffed, and he says, and Hades uh, says, "Oh, well, you've got to either sacrifice Andromeda, Andromeda, the king's uh, daughter, or I'm just going to destroy the city." With uh, an ancient beast known as the Kraken, who needs to be released, and uh, and on his way out, on leaving, he just drops the absolute bombshell to Percy that his his (laughs) dad is Zeus. Zeus, Yeah, and then with this newfound demigoddery, Percy and friends go on a quest to find something that can kill the Kraken, and also Percy kind of wants to do in Hades as well as as revenge for killing his adopted dad. They need our worship. What do we need of the gods? Now I created them, and they reward my love with defiance. There will be no truce. This is the end. This is just the start. But yeah, I was I was drawn to this film because I it promised to be kind of fun, non-committal, and might just give me a good story, sort of like a holiday romance in a way. But you didn't fall in love. No, I didn't. It was more like getting uh, sick off the local food yeah. on holiday. Oh, what a great... That's a great put-down, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, that's ter- I'm sorry about that. No, I mean, like... It, 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 the funny thing about watching this is that, like, Clash of the Titans is mostly interesting because it's been so forgotten. In, we're in our 30s, and, I mean, I... It's just one of these films that you remember being at the cinema. Most people probably aren't sure if they've really seen it. I think it it went into production because of this brief furore that Hollywood had with, like, macho swords and sandals movies after 300 was just such a massive success. So so they thought they'd dig into and see what what else they could make, and they remade this. There's a remake of a film made in the 80s called Clash of the Titans with a similar premise... That's actually most famous for using um, the stop motion animations for the monsters of, of like kind of a Hollywood legend, uh, Ray Harryhausen, who's this amazing animator. Um, so it's got a real like kitschy value, the original. Yeah, being inspired by Lord of the Rings as well. You can tell that by the score a little bit, I think. Well, the, oh, class, yeah, yeah, it prob- yeah, I think it probably was. Uh, you know, an epic fantasy, but it was most famous because it came out just after 3D became a massive thing with with Avatar. And and so what they decided to do is they decided to try and capitalise on this by doing this, like, at the 11th hour, the 
they put a bunch of 3D effects on it. They retrofitted it. I think they that's retrofitted the, it. That's with, the industry with 3D, term. Yeah. Rather than what with Avatar, they shot it with special cameras so it would give it like a really good effect. They sort of retrofitted it with 3D. And infamously, this was horrible. So, so horrible to watch. And there were even complaints of people straining their eyes and be, because it was because because it looked so bad, like the 3D effects didn't 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 like line up properly, and so it ended up looking really ugly and twisted and and, and stuff. Uh, but because it was just after 3D and everyone was so excited, it made silly money. But no one actually liked the film because why would you like the film? I mean, it was trash. But then Hollywood made a sequel anyway because they thought let's just see if we can get a bit more blood out of this stone. And it still made a lot of money, but not enough money. Not as much money as the the, the previous film. Uh, and no one liked Wrath of the Titans either. Uh, so they just scrapped the series. Uh, yeah, I think it was probably the death knell of the short-lived macho swords and sandals stuff. That's basically the history of Clash of the Titans. I mean, you call it trash. I just call it lightweight. Yeah, I think it's just. I think it's it's just a bit of fun. I don't. I didn't find it particularly offensive. I think maybe some of the female characters aren't very well written. In fact, the script is is pretty poor. I think the thing with like actors like Sam Worthington and Gemma Arterton, I think they're quite limited in their range anyway, and they really really struggle. I'm not saying that all their performances are bad or they're inferior to other actors in any way, but. I, I just think they really, really struggle it with a, with a quite a bad s- script. They do. And however, I- however, Mads Mikkelsen does extremely well with a very bad script. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I absolutely love Mads Mikkelsen. And he just gives it absolutely everything. I think he just has the right range of... like He's, he's obviously quite an intense. He plays quite a macho character. He's one of the... He's like the, the best soldier in Argos. So he goes on this adventure with Percy to sort of battle the battle the Titans and and you know fight Hades or whatever throws at him. But I just think every single line he delivers is absolutely amazing, and he, and he does that have that intensity. Yeah, and he's sort a great of person to get. I mean, there's a there's an old thing. A friend of mine had a thing about superhero films, uh, which is what you you always need to get the best actors to say the silliest lines. Yeah, and Mads Mikkelsen's a really great example of that. I think I think that should be a great a great thing for making blockbusters in general. And Mads Mikkelsen is a great actor and he's got an intensity about him. And so yeah, he is really really well placed. It's also funny like watching this they do that thing where like everyone has a European accent, usually an English accent. Uh except for Sam Worthington who just keeps his Aussie accent. <laughs> just like, well, screw it. I mean, no one, no one else is going to do it. You know, this none of this you know, the, the, this accent thing, no one cares, so I'm just going to do my accent. That, that's close enough. Yeah, I never really take those things as seriously some other people. Some people are kind of absolutely offended that, yeah, yeah. That, that it's just like, well, it's, you know, it's a fantasy film. You know, I, I'm not sure accents are always, are always that important, but we do need to talk about the performance of Ray Fiennes. Uh, well, we need, to, we need to talk about the gods in general, I think. But yeah, I think both... Let's start with, uh, with Hades, because... Yeah, sure. I'd say Ray Fiennes, out of 10, in terms of being really camp and over the top, I'd say he's about a 400. Um, <laughs> really? I actually think that he is uh, really phoning it in. I think he just couldn't really be asked to come up with another slimy, villainous, arch-evil voice other than Voldemort. So I think he just did 
a very similar everything to Voldemort can be asked, really. I think what happened is, obviously he's done this film for the money. I think mm. he's been paid a lot of money to do this film and he's and he said yes kind of reluctantly to it because they've just offered him a blank check. He's walked on set. He doesn't really want to be there. You know, he's yeah. had to get there at four in the morning or whatever it is. Mm. And he's done his first take and the director, Louis uh, Letterier, has gone, oh, look, I think that's a bit over the top, Ray. I don't think you should push it that far. And then, like, Ray's gone back and he's just been like, okay. And then he's gone even more. He's gone absolutely, like, even more than that's expected of him just to piss off the director. And so the director's like, I'm not going to ask him again because he's just going to keep going. He's just going to keep pushing it because he's so pissed off that he's here. So I think that's kind of what the... That's what we've got in that performance. Yeah, I think this this is the reuniting of, of uh, Ray Fiennes and Liam Neeson since Schindler's List. Maybe Ray Fiennes thought that he was going to you know, recapture some of that amazing energy between the two of them or something, but they they didn't because it's shit. It's a shit idea for a film. Argos has fallen. Do you feel stronger, brother? You thought the Kraken would bring you their prayers, but the Kraken is my child. It feeds only me. I command Olympus. Remember who you serve. I serve myself. We need the love of humans. No, you need it. I survive on their fear. Your reign is over, brother's use. But again, it's the, it's the script. It is the script, and the script is it, the script is terrible. I mean, it's, there's something there's something where like you, I don't, I think that a lot of the actors, to and to be honest, yes, that the some of the less good actors in this this film. I just find it so, so hard to hide how bad this is. And I think everyone knows how bad it is. And, and everyone, you know, are trying to be pros, but just kind of trying to get through the day and just read, read you know, read the lines in as, and try and give it, like, some measure of emotion. But most of the time they fail because it's just really horrible. I guess it's like... It's a lot of very poorly thought out, like explanation of how the gods work and uh, and the kind of actions that they have to go and do, and it's it's all kind of like nonsense, and they skip a bunch of steps. Everything's like so like rushed, and uh, they don't really focus on anything that could possibly be interesting. They also they kind of have like other things happen, like they kind of try and do a kind of a team up that's sort of trying to be a bit like oh humanity, we're all like a bit multiracial and multi-gendered, but we can all kind of all come together and fight, and that's what humanity's about. But it doesn't really... They're not really a super team. There's no charisma between that team. <laughs> they're just all a bit... Pretty per- Percy and co. They're all just a bit rubbish. So, I mean, I guess that's what's, yeah, really going wrong with it a lot. I don't even think the visual effects are very good. I don't think the Kraken looks great at all. No. I mean, this is a film that's over 10 years old now, but I thought it looked pretty ropey in terms of the CGI. If you want to see some really bad special effects, like I mean, going back on, onto the other main god in this, uh, Liam Neeson playing Zeus. Uh, yeah, I think he's also phoning it in. Um, but I mean, his main problem he's, is he's got a costume completely made out of lens flares. Uh, it's it's this shiny silver costume that, yeah, constantly seems to be like stuck in like flash mode and, and always on. And it looks really bad. I mean, I think like it look it looks like a bit like a kind of like a, a cheap fantasy series from the nineties. 
Uh, I mean, the rest of the costumes aren't much better, but his his looks particularly silly. And Liam Neeson in general is pretty silly in this. Yeah. And not in a good way. Yeah, he he's... Yeah, again, like, I think an actor who's dealing with a really bad script and, yeah, I, I, I think he gets quite tired and, and just seems like he's not really... He's not really sort of ready to take this film seriously at all. Another thing is, like, actually, you, you kind of came on to it, you sort of said it earlier, you said, like, oh, when Percy goes to fight the Titans. But it's like, well, what Titans? Like, there are no Titans in this in this, this movie. Like, Titans are an actual element of, like, Greek mythology that actually also actually do come into it in Wrath of the Titans. Yeah. But there's no Titans in this, in this movie. What about the Kraken? It's not really a titan. I mean, a titan... That was is, just created by Hades. That's just created by Hades. Yeah. Titans are supposed to be the gods before the, the actual, actual gods. God, yeah. That's what you call... That's what a titan is. Yeah. That, I, I don't know if that's just me being nitpicky or being like a mythology nerd or something. But it's just, it's just a weird oversight. Like, who are the titans in this? Because they're usually fighting just beasts and the odd demonic creature. Mm. But they barely even really fight gods. the gods in this. So this is all just... Bit rubbish. So you have to wait for the sequel. You have to wait for the sequel, which yeah. I did watch uh, on my own, <laughs> uh, and I can tell you that it doesn't. It doesn't get much better. Gemma Arterton's no longer in it because I think she'd kind of quit Hollywood by this point, or Hollywood had quit her. But she was treated. She she, she did this interview, which is great actually. If you want to dig out, where she basically goes through about how she was basically really poorly treated by Hollywood, and and her talents weren't really being used very well. She was in a lot of, like, schlock and and, and shit. And I, I don't know whether Hollywood quit her or she quit Hollywood, but it was very mutual. And her thing is, like, I'm never going back because it's horrible. Um, but and she- they replace Andromeda. They replace Andromeda, the, the actress Alexa Davalos. They replace her with Rosamund Pike. Oh, is that, is that... Are they the same character? They are, yeah. Oh, I completely missed that. Um, but, yeah... Rosalind Pike is great, but guess but guess what? She's doing the same as the last lot. Like, she's a very talented actor, but she turns up and she's like, this is shit. Uh, I'm just gonna try and be a pro and make my way through this, but it's but it's pretty rubbish. New other new additions, Toby Kebbell, uh, an amazing talent who's just been constantly wasted by Hollywood at every single turn. Uh, he's sort of he's meant to be a bit of like a more like uh, cavalier, like Jack the Lad. He plays like Poseidon's son. Uh, and he's sort of so he's cousins with Percy, but they kind of forget about his character, and then he just sort of floats around in the background, and and is thoroughly uninteresting. Bill Nye uh, can't resist a paycheck from Hollywood. He just turns up and is in it as well. And Ray Fiennes, what's he on the camp scale? Ray Fiennes uh, is even more camp. He now has he now has a pitchfork. It's like a pitchfork with like two prongs. Which so it doesn't look as much like a trident. So he's even because so he's got a bit of a campy weapon now. Yeah, he turns up and sort of swans about and then betrays Zeus, uh, captures Zeus, and then sort of gets close to him and then sort of talks about like, ah, oh, my, ah, oh, brother, brother, oh, we must, we must, uh, we must go against the humans. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of death. Like he does some of that, which is uh, yeah, similar. Yeah, pretty similar to the last stuff. The they don't really reference the events of Clash of the Titans uh, too much, which is kind of handy because then because people probably forgot that they saw it anyway. Zeus sort of turns up at the beginning of Wrath of the Titans and and goes to Percy's house and says, "I need you," and Percy is like, "No," 
And then Zeus says, like, oh, I know where you're hiding from being a god. It's because you think that that part, being part human, makes you unworthy of being a god. And it's like, no, no he doesn't. No, he doesn't. The whole story of Clash of the Titans is that he resents... Reze- yeah, he rejects it. He, he reject- rejects being a god. The ending is that, oh, no, I don't want to be a god. I want to be a human. I like being a human. Humanity's great. But Percy just sort of, in Wrath of the Titans, is sort of gives this silence that kind of affirms... Zeus's thing of like, oh, you feel like you don't deserve to be a god. It's like, no, you've, you've, you've just. I mean, I know you don't care. I know, like, no one. I know, I know, no one cares. Like, funding this movie is just basically. I, I think they must have known that they were they were going to make a sequel, a third one, if it was if it made enough money. But I think everyone knew it wasn't going to make any more money. I think no one, you know, they knew it was going to be crap again. So, I mean, I guess they just kind of thought like, well, it doesn't matter if we re- if we're really sticking to any of the things that the characters did or said or were in the last one because no one's really bothered. Like none of, we we don't care about this. There are some some good choices if you'll believe it. Uh, but mostly bad choices. They do try a bit more, like, slightly cleverer camera work. They mix in, like, grander effects and stuff, which was, which, which was quite cool. Actually, they, there's this... Um, the, the father of the gods, Kronos, is, like, this giant monster, and he, he looks pretty cool. But then the bad, there's bad ones, like, during a fight with a demon, the music gets a bit jazzy. And then at one point, like, this, a saxophone is on the soundtrack and actually stopped it and had to re- rewind it because it was like, what made you ever think that a jazzy sax was right for Greek heroes fighting ancient monsters? Oh, that's where um, they came from, those saxophones. They came from ancient Greece. Oh, did they? Yeah, so oh, that's okay. fine. Oh, absolutely fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just more dross. At the end, if you want to talk about Ray finds some more, Ray finds his Hades... At the end, uh, the gods, uh, most of the gods die, apart from Hades, who just loses all his powers. He's just going to be a human now. He sort of redeems himself, but now he's got no pow- no more power. So it's unclear what he's going to do. But I like to think that like H- Hades then goes off and like opens up like a, a feta and wine bar or something on one of the Greek islands or something. And it's just really hammy and camp about everything. He's got to pay rent now. He does. He's got to learn like human things. Like he can't just magic stuff out of the way. Yeah. It's like ah, more ouzo for you, sir. <laughs> so overall, would you recommend both these films to to an audience? No, 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 no way. I mean, it's just they're just they're pretty awful pieces of work. But there's something that. <laughs> There is something weirdly soothing. We have this kind of concept that our sister came up with, which is like sick day films. And it's like that idea of finding a movie that is that is ideal, ideal for sick days or hangovers. It's not something that you have to really invest in, but it's big enough and kind of loud enough to keep your attention, keep your exciting if you're in a, if you're feeling a bit vulnerable. Quite often these are kind of like forgettable blockbusters from the 90s and the noughties and, and this kind of thing and the maybe the 10s as well. And the, these films fit as that. You could stick them on on a hangover and they 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 might be quite soothing, but it's all pretty like dire stuff. But I'm I'm still kind of weirdly glad I watched them. I just feel kind of sorry for them as films. Like I just feel kind of sorry for them because they just they kind of came. Nobody cared. They were rubbish, and then they went. And I just kind of feel I I don't know. There's I almost have an almost sentimentality to them. Like oh you. You poor little strange creature, like lost in lost in time and lens flare costumes and 
Ray Fiennes and Liam Neeson calling each other brother in their most phoned-in Shakespearean voices. Yeah, I mean, don't feel too sorry for the films because they probably paid for Liam and Rafe's holiday home somewhere. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think Clash of the Titans, I didn't watch the, the sequel, but that, anyway, it was, it was lightweight, it was vacuous. Uh, the visual effects were pretty ropey, but all in all, pretty inoffensive for me. And, yeah, I think something that you could sort of switch on if you didn't want to think about it too much but yeah I think the initial goal of the film or what I think the director set out to make this sort of really grand sweeping epic about sort of ancient gods and and the myths and the legends it didn't quite work they wouldn't really get the script right or they didn't really get the um they didn't really get the scope of the film or the look of the film right so yeah a bit of a failure but not financially no certainly not brother it is time for the mortals to pay. My child waits to do your will. Release the Kraken! So, this week, uh, me and Sam went to watch In the Earth at the BFI, and Sam's going to tell you the plot. Martin is a research scientist who goes into a government-controlled deep woodland in search of his ex-colleague, Dr. Wendell. Martin is guarded by Alma, a park ranger, but both are attacked on their trip. In need of help, they meet Zack, a man living in the woods independently, and it is there that they start to learn more about the natural phenomenon deep into the forest. Or, as a haiku, the woods. What's alive? Social distance comes madness. What a camping trip. You said you were going to do Out of the Woods by Taylor Swift. (laughs) Yeah, I could do. But I don't want to reduce such an amazing and important artist such as Tay-Tay down to just a haiku. I want to let her be be heard, you know what I mean? Yeah, I guess. I wonder how she'd do in this film. I don't think she'd last very long. I, it sounds like I'm being snarky, but I like the odd Taylor Swift song as much as the next person, but I don't think that Taylor Swift would last very long against axe-wielding psychopaths and omnipotent horrors. I think she'd probably go insane quite quickly. I think she can handle a breakup better than most people. I guess a breakup is an omnipotent horror in itself, isn't it? So Less from your diary... Uh, Sam (laughs) and uh, uh, let's listen to a clip he told me his story these are his memories can you feel him now in the earth no I don't know what you mean I think you do so what are you working on searching ways of making crops more efficient funny place to study crops in a forest we had to send a rescue party in to get a group out a couple of months ago. They got lost. Why didn't they use GPRS? There's no fun reception in there. People get a bit funny in the woods sometimes. You're worried she's going to get you? Yeah, who is it? It's a local folktale. She's the spirit of the woods. Listen. Someone's watching us. So this is the latest film from Ben Wheatley, who is a British director. 
um, who is very prolific. He's made nine feature films since 2009. Uh, that's n- nine films in 11 years. No, sorry, 12 years. Yeah, he's uh, he's prolific. I saw an interview with him where it seemed like he was almost addicted to filmmaking. I don't oh, really? think he used that word addicted, but there was a sense of that he just wanted to go out and make something. And I think he wrote In the Earth in about 15 days. Wow, and then he, yeah, and then they uh, they went to film it. I'm not sure actually if that was if the 15 days was the was the writing or the actual filming, but uh, yeah, it seems like they they did it fairly quickly, whichever way. Yeah, yeah, I think he is pretty addicted. I uh, listened to a podcast with Reece Shearsmith in it, and he thought that he was basically writing this movie as as kind of therapy during lockdown, and was kind of surprised when they ended up making it, but. He, he's basically a director that I have a really complicated relationship with. And maybe enough for a Taylor Swift song. Who knows? <laughs> Talking about Taylor Swift a lot in this episode. So, so he's, he's a person that in, in a lot of ways I really like. I mean, he makes these a lot of films that are very red in tooth and claw. Lots of quite violent, savage moments. He often makes horrors. But he's also made uh, a gangster film, thrillers and a comedy or two. He has a very macabre sense of humour, and I'd say a very quintessentially British sense of humour, which I think is quite macabre. Yeah, a lot of his horror films blur into black comedies, I think. They do. Um, they certainly do. I think this definitely had a sense of humour as well. He has lots of talent, particularly in like kind of sound design and editing. I think he edits all his films himself. Uh, he, he did edit this one as well. He's amazing with visuals. He can create an atmosphere really, really well. Yeah, his set design is always really interesting as well. I always remember from Free Fire, which was a film from 2016, and from High Rise in 2015, how cluttered the set design is. There's lots of junk all over the place. There is, yeah. And I think, wow, well, there's so many details. Exactly. Well, that's, that's why I think it was quite interesting, because I guess maybe junk is the wrong word for it, but every single frame is kind of filled with all these different objects. Yeah, he's a filmmaker that seems to work very quickly, but also his films, uh, yeah, they have a lot of detail in them. The, the problem is, is that often I found that his films are really a bit uneven. It can be really difficult to pinpoint with with his work. But sometimes you just watch a part of what he uh, makes. It's, it's usually like the first third of the film and it's a masterpiece. I absolutely love it. And then it can just slip into something forgettable or downright self-indulgent nonsense. Uh, and it just can really put you off. So I'll watch everything he makes, because often he makes like wonderful films, but sometimes the disappointment I have with something he makes is is so great, uh, because I just I just love certain parts of his films, and it, but then the disappointment just overshadows everything else. But I mean, I do love it. I mean, I particularly have this thing with, with Kill List, which might be his most famous film, in certain circles. I guess it depends which circle you're going into, but I mean... Yeah, I think he's really hit and miss. I think some of his films, I think, are really well-crafted, uh, while others, I think, yeah, as you say, I think self-indulgent is the right right word to use about them. I think I'm not ever sure I ever really want to watch his films again. Like, yeah. There's never really that sort of repeat value to them, but uh, actually I really enjoy Free Fire, which was, um, I think, the, fir- the only film that he's made in the United States. I know he's done TV in the United States, Mm-hmm. I can't think of another film that he's he set over there, but um, Free Fire is a really good sort of action thriller um, that yeah has loads of black comedy, really grotesque, 
It's really but, original, really inventive, yeah. yeah. With a really, really great script. So so that's my favourite Ben Wheatley, but I guess we should talk about, about In the Earth. In the Earth. Well, the, the thing is, is that with, with, with all that, I think, um, I think In the Earth was brilliant. I think actually, with all that, that kind of preamble about Wheatley, I actually think In the Earth clears a lot of the hurdles that Wheatley gets caught on in the past. I think it's... First and foremost, like a real feast of like sound and vision. Uh, he really takes it to another level with this. Uh, and that's often some of the stuff that he does best. So, I mean, I think that's one of the, the reasons that I think this works really, really well. Yeah, we should say that the cinematography is by Nick Gillespie. And this is his first ever feature-length film as director of photography. No way. Which is amazing because it just looks absolutely that's fantastic. That's incredible. And then the music's by Clint Mansell. Yeah, he's a great, he, he's a great composer. I think he's worked on um, a lot of a lot of Ben Wheatley films as well. Um, if you're a fan, basically, of like psychedelic stuff in films, which which I am, I love it. Then this is a real must. Starting on the kind of the sound part of the, the this uh, trippiness, it really like cracks and pops and reverberates around you, and, and it's combined with these intense colours and images of like nature flowing into one another, and it gets more and more intense as it goes on. I, I love that stuff. Uh, so it's really great for me. It's like that, like right from the beginning. Like the opening scene is is basically him kind of experimenting with a kind of ultra close up and very crisp sound. So that, yeah, this is this is what, it's almost as if he said he's saying like this is one of the one of the main things that I wanted to achieve with this film. This is what I really wanted to do. Yeah, they make you feel so uneasy. I think those two aspects in terms of the visuals, in terms of the the sound design and the score itself. Like yeah. I guess. The whole film is as it as it goes on, it gets more and more tense, more and more bizarre, and uh, you're less sure of what's really happening in front of your eyes. Um, there is still a, like, a narrative that runs through it, but ultimately, as the film goes on, it just gets stranger and stranger. And yeah, it's because of the audio visuals that that's why it's so successful in doing it. Almost as if you're going deeper and deeper into a hallucination. Yeah, which is great. The the thing is with that is that I think if it doesn't have a place in the story psychedelic sequences like you see in, in this can often end up feeling pretentious or self-indulgent but if you don't fall into those traps then it's wonderful I think that he did fall into those traps when he's he made a film called A Field in England and it had sequences that are similar to this but they just didn't work as well although they were memorable they felt a bit disjointed and they weren't put together as well and they didn't place in the story as well A Field in England is probably my one of the Wheatley films I have the biggest problems with. I find just psychedelic stuff in in, in cinema just really interesting. I've got a real taste for it. Uh, I guess you have to be in the right mood for it, though. You, you do have to be in the right mood for it. I think it, it's not for everyone. And it has to be utilised in the right film. It definitely does. And I, and I think that it could be one of the things that, that puts you off the film, is that if it's too trippy... You know, I think it's really interesting trying to communicate to the audience like a feeling just through this intense sound and colour. And now you just have to sort of give yourself over to that and just drink it in and really just connect with these images and 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 that's really uh interesting and it makes great cinema it was great to see it in a cinema you know this is the third time i've been to a cinema now and this is probably the the best reason so far just to go to a cinema that I, that i've seen i think this is going to get a limited release but if you get a chance to see it on the big screen and are interested in this it's great because obviously just the sound and the images are just so much more 
intense because you're seeing it in like a massive loud format yeah and i don't think there's been um, a huge palaver about its release which makes me kind of think that because it feels like a bit of a cult film or a kind of a, a film that you'd find you know in a in a video shop back in the day or something that you just kind of discover late night on channel four i think ben would probably be really flattered by that well that's, that's, what that's I mean. probably one of the reasons the kind of films that he uh that, that inspired a, a lot of his filmmaking yeah because i think the hope for him maybe is that someone who doesn't know anything about the film comes in and watches it and is just completely sort of freaked out by it or yeah. is kind of completely taken by surprise about what sort of horror film it turns into because it definitely starts as a horror film. I mean, the bit where they start to meet Zack is mm. when it starts to get very dark and very disturbing. And yeah, that's kind of just where the middle part of the film anyway belongs and then the final part of the film, I think it is, yeah, it's more hallucinogenic that's when i think the images that you're talking about that's when they start to become a bit more prominent and there's this idea that the the group of four really yeah martin alma zach and dr wendell they all end up doing together and what they what they try to investigate and figure out is kind of really fascinating but yeah also very cosmic very cosmic indeed um, I agree with you. I think actually on those those four people, I think it's really great casting. I think it really you know, brings something to it. I think like uh, Joel Fry, who you might know from Cruella and Yesterday, uh, which are not very good, but he's that's probably his, his most famous stuff he's been in. He's just a great like protagonist. I think he squeals really well and is really watchable. Uh, he, he's kind of pathetic at parts, but it fits with the character. But he manages to capture that that sense of humor i really i really liked alma uh I, I haven't seen this this actress before she's someone called elora torchia but she's really tough really likable i thought that like wendell when when she turns up later is it, she's quite detached she's sort of suspicious but she does exposition really well which is actually really important for something like this that's something that that's really hard to get right actually just explaining to people what's going on even if it's a little bit ambiguous and the film is quite quite an ambiguous watch you need someone who can deliver those kind of theories and telling you what's going on in the world well and i think that's really good yeah and she's played by uh hayley squires yeah i don't i'm not sure i know her very well yeah i think she was probably most famous for i daniel blake which was oh, a right. ken loach film from a few years ago dr wendell's just not by this point, when you meet her, she's kind of been in the forest for such a long amount of time, and you do kind of feel that she's become more and more detached from reality. Mm. There's this kind of sense about her. She she doesn't often speak in perfect sentences, or, yeah, there's this kind of aloofness to her, which I think shows you that she's, yeah, she's started to retreat into her own mind a little bit. I think the real standout for me was Reese Shearsmith as Zach. I think he just steals the show. Shearsmith has real uh, experience and passion when it comes to horror, but he always has this sense of humour to the things he does, which just fits so well into a Ben Wheatley film. You know, he's made he made like The League of Gentlemen and Inside Number Nine, these two like kind of horror comedy kind of TV series. That whole group of of people that that made League of Gentlemen, they're all like encyclopedias of like horror and science fiction and you know he he understands how to make this work really really well but he, he is just so menacing and sinister completely unpredictable as zach yeah. as zach oh yeah yeah as zach, I know, yeah, we might, which is really clear, yeah. which is great i listened to the uh, empire magazine podcast they did an interview with him and he was in a previous ben wheatley film 
a field in England, yeah. which is set in the civil, uh, the British Civil War, and he plays this guy called uh, Whitehead. Shearsmith really, really loved that role and was really kind of like a, obsessed with it, and really, I think he he seemed really keen to, to go back and be directed by by Wheatley. But what he said, what he said on the podcast was that in the original script, his character Zach is actually called Zach Whitehead. So there's almost a suggestion that maybe this character Zach might be the great, 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 great grandson or somewhat something of this character from the Civil War. That maybe somehow these films could be connected in some kind of weird way that perhaps Ben Wheatley's doing that. Yeah, it's all part of the same universe. I think the scene where Martin and Alma meet Zach is really pivotal because it's really filled with tension. And there's something off about him straight away. Mm. He's got this kind of new age hippie vibe. But again, it's like that sense of because he's been sort of out of society for so long, there's something not quite right with him. And yeah. there isn't something quite right with him. There is, yeah, that's certainly true. I think Wheatley really understands that kind of character really well. I remember even in his first feature called Down Terrace, which is like a gangster film, there's those new agey elements. And you get this sense that he, I think he he has known people that are kind of a little bit off the grid, uh, weird hippies, like leftovers from the the 60s maybe not not necessarily lived through the 60s but perhaps yeah people slightly on the fringes of stuff and those kind of people people filter into these his characters that he writes yeah these kind of people who've taken perhaps too many trips down the years i think in general like the the horror elements though of it are great yeah like the horror i think it is a great horror film I, i think in the earth builds up atmosphere with all those little details that we're talking about all these little things with like zach's character for example and and these these characters like living spaces the way he dresses them he, he just lets scenes go on for just long enough to create a sense of unease or suspicion yeah, this is this is really absolutely. what he does well even just the way he cuts scenes he does that thing where they they sort of cut to black for a few seconds and then come back and it just it, it just gives that little bit of energy that energy underneath like everything yeah and you lose that sense of time when it does that you those, do, yeah that's those, so true those editing so. transitions yeah that take a bit longer than normal you're like well are we going to the next hour are we going to the next day we're we going to the next week and that's kind of pivotal because they go into this forest and yeah normal life just doesn't really exist because there's this energy within the forest that um, yeah is disturbing everything around it it drops in about british folk stories yeah and um about i don't know if this is actually true but a local legend called parnag feg which is kind of like a woodland spirit. Again, that kind of adds so to this cool. sort of like so weird. this cult idea of it, really. And yeah, this idea about about all these these kind of pagan rituals that reminded me a lot of the the Wicker Man. Actually, there's a standing stone in this, and standing stones were monolithic objects that were created thousands of years ago. Oh right, and that kind of reminded me of of in 2001: A Space Odyssey. <laughs> yeah. Like about the about the monolith and that this idea that there's this symbol that has this alien power. In some ways, I think you could make a link that this could be 2001: A Space Odyssey by way of a Maypole, or yeah, by, <laughs> or maybe by way of the Wicker Man. You could say as well, like because rather than outer space and aliens, there is this unknown. We won't spoil anything, of course, but. There is this unknown energy around, but the chunk of the story is also them being pursued by a, a much more tangible menace. In 2001, it's Hal, but in in the Earth, it, it's Zack and 
and other elements. So uh, you, I think you could make that argument. But like on the on the kind of that meat of the film, like I think what we've we've talked about, I mean, it's you know essentially is that they're going into this place. Uh, Martin's trying to work out what happened to this scientist that he was that he was working under, and trying to work out what is actually going on in this in this forest. And yeah, as it as it goes on. Uh, we obviously we, we won't tell you exactly what's going on, but yeah, you know, as it goes on, it does become uh, it's still a horror movie, but it, I think it's an environmental parable to a certain extent. Yeah. You know, what do we need to do to live side by side with nature? Is nature malicious, uh, and does it require something religious, something spiritual to connect with it? Can we connect with it on some like in some kind of spiritual or magical way, or is it that is it going to be science that actually helps us achieve this this goal of cohabiting with nature? And I think that's the questions that the that the film's kind of throwing out. I think yeah, that's a really good summary. And yeah, you kind of got all these ideas within this horror film as well, which is kind of interesting because I guess maybe it's easy to pigeonhole the horror genre a little bit yeah. and just say, oh, we expect these sort of same motifs or we expect these same sort of cliches, but this is a real horror film that really pushes the boundary and yeah, has these really interesting and bizarre ideas that you you wouldn't sort of normally associate with with films yeah within that bracket. Yeah, I think it's great for that. I think there was something also going on about covid and lockdown yeah in this as well the, the film takes place and they talk about that there's a disease in the cities basically it, it, it's not completely integral to the plot but it's always hanging around it's an element whether or not it's covid whether it's not the actual real world one it's not always made clear it's a bit ambiguous but i think it's it's a film written and made during lockdown and I think you you definitely get the sense that this is also about the inspiration, the weirdness of lockdown and like trying to work out our place when there's a kind of threat like that as well. Yeah, I completely agree. I think I really responded to that actually. I think over lockdown, sort of people naturally become quite introverted. We sort of spend less time with people. We become more paranoid disease. We we start to read more into things that don't have any meaning. And this is kind Mm. of fundamentally what In the Earth is tapping into a little bit. I think you have this group of people who, for one reason or another, are attracted to this specific area, which might or might not have this this cosmic energy or this otherworldly life force. Uh, and yeah, they all go mad in their own particular way over it. And I think that's kind of a little bit what's happened over lockdown. Um, I know this is something that we're coming out of now, but yeah. over these 18 months, I'm sure people have been through some pretty wild times inside their own heads. Yeah, you know, you know, this is a really strong Ben Wheatley film, and it's a really, really strong film in general. I really, really enjoyed it. I really responded to it well. I mean, this is a really atmospheric, trippy, gruesome horror in all the best ways. But it's it's just it's also just such a strong horror film in terms of the genre. Anyway, I just think that the way that it's all all these great elements to it, but you know, at its core and its spine is is. You know, it it really is the best of a director like Ben Wheatley, someone that understands the craft of a of a horror film and can make one that's that's really strong. And it's a proper cinematic experience. I could definitely see myself recommending this to a lot of people and recommending it to a lot of people to go to the cinema and see it. 
Yeah, I I also think it's one of Ben Wheatley's strongest films. I think it will be incredibly divisive amongst audiences. Yeah, I think the I do think the ambiguity of it because there is there's always an amb- ambiguousness to Ben Wheatley films, and I think that could put a lot of people off. And I think that perhaps it is it will just be too trippy and too experimental in in some ways for some people, um, which is which is fair enough. I think both of those elements can be really off-putting. But that's his intention, though. That's yeah. He, he, I think he wants people to have different readings of this, and I think he kind of would like the idea of some people that absolutely hate it, because <laughs> I think that's that's how you respond to films like this that can be so so subjective. But yeah, I think it's kind of beautiful in its own way, this film, even though there are scenes in here which are kind of very, very gory, which again is, is kind of a... Feels like a fundamental part of his of his filmmaking, really. <laughs> it he certainly likes, is, yeah. Yeah, he likes... He sort of like likes blood and violence, but... Yeah, at times it's scary, at times it's yeah, it's horrifying. But ultimately, there's this very interesting idea in there, yeah, about nature and about the environment and how can we... Like, this might sound sort of very new age and, yeah, very very out there, but, yeah, how do we... As you think you said earlier, how do we cohabitate with the environment? The experience, I was kind of left a bit underwhelmed. Since I've come out of the cinema and I've thought about it a lot and, yeah, I think this is the first Ben Willey film that I'll go, go back and rewatch. I saw something in the woods... It wants to talk. What do you want? Everything seems to just keep us here. If you like this, then you should watch Annihilation, written and directed by Alex Garland from 2018. The film starts with biologist Lena, played by Natalie Portman, being interviewed about her experiences in The Shimmer. We cut back to four months previously, where Lena is mourning the death of her husband Kane, played by Oscar Isaac. Kane was part of a group of Green Berets who went on a secret mission, only never to return. He then returns unexpectedly to their home without any memory of how he got back, where he was, or what his mission consisted of. Kane suddenly starts coughing up blood. But while he is in an ambulance, it is intercepted by security forces who take him and Lena to a secret location. At this base, Lena sees the Shimmer. It is a natural phenomenon created by a meteoroid that landed in the United States. This has created a bubble-like force field, but little else is known about what's inside this quote-unquote dead zone, as Kane is the only person to have ever made it out alive. The Shimmer is slowly expanding, putting the world at risk and Lena volunteers to go inside, along with three other scientists and a paramedic, to finally understand the meaning behind this otherworldly creation. Your husband's here. Let me see him. He's extremely ill. You have to tell me where he was, what he was doing. It was his decision to go in. It's something they termed the Shimmer. We've sent in drones and teams of people, but nothing comes back. If I knew what happened, I could save his life. The boundary's getting bigger, it's expanding. We're talking cities, states. You need to know what's inside. So do I. It's destroying everything. It's not destroying. It's making something new. So, 
It doesn't take someone with a PhD in film studies to work out the similarities between Annihilation and Into the Earth. Perhaps the only difference is in the genre, with Annihilation being in the realm of sci-fi and Into the Earth part of the horror staple. However, the premise of a group of people going into a remote location for scientific purposes, only to have their sanity tested, is still the same. With Annihilation, we know more about our lead protagonist in Lena, while Martin is more of an empty vessel in Into the Earth. Lena is dealing with grief, depression, and regret, and this is explored as she enters the Shimmer. For Martin, the death of his parents from the virus also has an effect in the forest, but this is more subtle. Both films also look at the ethical boundaries of science, and how a man's, or woman's reach, can exceed his, or hers grasp. Madness and psychosis are also explored, as the cost of exploration takes its toll on all parties. Both are worth repeat viewings as well. In each film there are landscapes that distort the minds of those who enter, as well as plenty of scenes in which the events are very subjective. Annihilation leaves its audience with a more clear-cut ending, but there is definitely a good debate to be had about who or what Lena and Kane actually are by the end of the film. Similarly, in Ben Wheatley's film, we can't be quite sure who or what has happened to the players, or whether some or all have experienced a form of transcendence. I don't think you necessarily have to be a horror fan to enjoy Annihilation, or a sci-fi obsessive to like In the Earth. Both have kaleidoscopic visuals, moments of pure terror, and plenty of interesting concepts that will have you questioning reality and what lies beyond the world we think we know. I think that's one of the, the, the best, if you like this, that I think you've done, because it, just in terms of picking the films, they're such good comparison pieces. I love Annihilation a lot. Mm. Like I think it's an amazing, amazing piece of work. Visually striking, and yes, trippy, like In the Earth is, but in a different sort of way. The, the trips in In the Earth they come and that you you know when they're happening in annihilation they're sort of happening all the time a little bit apart from like a couple of sequences but yeah it's absolutely wonderful absolutely wonderful film so so interesting and so head spinny and so like visually arresting and all the characters are great and the script is great and it's I think it's a really great feminist film as well. Yeah. I think the main cast and everyone that goes into the Shimmer are all women. And I think more commonly, I think when I see films like this, something like The Thing is a very masculine film, and and uh, which is not to its the original, the original, the original thing, film, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's not to its detriment. It's just that the casts of these kind of films where something weird happens and they're in a, an isolated area and they all have to investigate it. For a long time, they have been male dominated. It doesn't mean they're any less uh, brilliant films. Although not by a female filmmaker, it was really good to to, to see a film that um, actually tried to to work with a a more diverse cast. Yeah, it's very melancholy as well. It is very melancholy. It's a lot about death. It's a lot about grief. You know, the shimmer is slowly growing, isn't it? And that, and then, uh, and that kind of almost mimics the, the kind of the terminality of life. Be that through an accident or disease, or uh, you know, a lot of these, a lot, a lot of the characters are, are all dealing with their own different versions of of death and grief and and having to try and find a way to accept that and the shimmer kind of mimics that yeah i think it's a great sci-fi as well because it does make you think about the universe it makes you think about all the different like the material of the universe you know all the different atoms that that are there and it's not exactly a film that explores too much about the solar system and and what's really out there Mm. but i think you do kind of become a lot more interested in everything around us and what 
and what actually were made of. It is quite heavy, I think, what we've, how we've just described it. <laughs> uh, you need to be in the right mood to watch it. Oh my god, I just realised it's called Annihilation, and it's all about death. I only just got that. And if you didn't like this, you should watch The Ritual from 2017. If you still want to go down to the woods today, but want something a bit more grounded than in the earth, then The Ritual is worth a look. Luke, played by Rafe Spall, was until a year ago the best man for his friend Phil's wedding. But on the way back from the pub, Luke and Phil encounter some robbers and Phil is killed. Haunted by the guilt of this event, Luke and the rest of the groomsmen decide to still go on the planned stag do to honour Phil. One year later, hiking in the Swedish forests. But after a couple of wrong turns, Luke and co find themselves lost with a dark supernatural presence on their tail. Rob would have loved this place. He's a good man. The best of us. Ah! Oh, oh, it's twisted. It's twisted. Ah! Look, we go southwest through here. We cut the journey in half. Or through the forest. Yeah, why not? Now, is it me or is it really quiet in here? last night. Look, look at this. Nothing has done that to you. You've done it to yourself. Why do you have to deny everything because I say? Because I do not value your judgment. We need to be working together, man. Ah! Oh, my God! What the fuck is that? Fucking hell, we don't know where we are! Now, you could certainly ascribe the ritual with a folk horror label and in the earth is is definitely a folk horror so if the whole concept of cults atmospheric creeps and nature-based supernatural horrors switch you off then yeah maybe slasher movies might be more your vibe but if you're still interested in some wicker man-esque shocks but think the sound of a psychedelic trip full of ambiguity and weirdness is too much then the ritual might be more your cup of strange tasting herbal tea that makes you fall unconscious as i said you're still in the woods but without giving too much of the story away you will understand what's going on by the end even if it may be a bit supernatural there aren't psychedelic trips instead it's nightmares and curses that before the group the longer and deeper they stay lost there's some wonderful design in the creepy totems and signs that the gang come across, not to mention a memorable final encounter with something that's both powerful and really eerie. I'm a big fan of Rafe Spall. He's more well known for being in Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead, but I see him as the most criminally underused British actor out there. Every role he's in, he nails. More famous for those funny roles, but is actually a real chameleon. In this, he has to navigate guilt and terror, but on a journey to try and find an inner strength. It's definitely different to In the Earth here again, as the ritual is a personal story of redemption, rather than an allegory for humanity and nature's coexistence. The pacing and atmosphere is really on point here. Every member of the group is really, really good. Violence, in some ways, is similar to In the Earth. Restricted, but when it happens, it's really strong and gruesome. Maybe one a bit more for horror junkies, but the ritual is a real hidden gem. Atmospheric and well put together, and paced really well. If you're looking for a horror where only the characters stray off the beaten path and the rest of the film at least is on some plane of reality, pack your camping gear and summon the ritual. Yeah, that sounds like a really good antidote to In the Earth. Like, yeah. yeah, that's a really good way of thinking about it. Because I, I, it's funny, actually, talking about Annihilation, I don't want to make the ritual sound 
too simple for people because I think it's a really effective horror. It's a really strong horror film. There is its own psychological journey it's going on, but it's just, it, it's not as trippy or weird. It's just, it, it's effective in its own way. When you said you were going to do the ritual, I'd completely forgotten about it. I do think you're correct in saying that, yeah, it's a bit of a like hidden gem or a film that might have bypassed quite a few audiences because it certainly bypassed me. And yeah, it is it is out there to watch something that was released a few years ago, but yeah. perhaps just hasn't got the the circulation that um, that it deserves. No, it's one of these things that just hasn't really got got the circulation. But I think it's really worth a look. Yeah, and you say it's set in Sweden. Yes, it is. Yeah. So was Midsummer, which uh, really? Yeah. Oh yeah. So it was really not a good t- tourist advert for, <laughs> over the past few years. Yeah. Quite a lot of films that uh, yeah. yeah seem to pitch that there's uh, something weird going on in the countryside. Cults and otherworldly presences. Really strange, twisted things going on in the, in the countryside of Sweden. Yeah. Well, um, the Earth is, is set near Bristol. So yeah, I don't think I'll be going on a staycation there anytime soon. <laughs> Probably not. Maybe that'll be the next thing. Maybe there'll start to be loads of like culty folky horror movie set near Bristol. It's a new destination to go for eldritch horrors. Mm. Please don't take offence of that if you're from Bristol or part of the, the, the Bristol Tourism Board. Perhaps it's a good idea for tourism. Yeah. Well, people are always trying to do sort of really sort of scary or they're looking for the next thrill. Exactly. Um, so yeah, maybe, you know, if you want to sort of spend two or three weeks out of your mind in a in a woodland somewhere near near Bristol being chased by someone with an axe maybe yeah yeah that's that's quite cheap that's all you need just a bloke with an axe and growing a beard I mean that's 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 pretty easy to put together right maybe Reece Shearsmith could do it on weekends <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Films Are Better Than People. Be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on right now so you never miss an episode. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts and SoundCloud. And don't forget to come follow us on Twitter at Films Are Better and like us on Facebook.com forward slash Films Are Better.